Well, a while back, my wife and I rewatched the movie Chariots of Fire. I won't ask for a show of hands for how many people have seen it, but just know that I'm going to be giving some spoilers along the way if you haven't, so I apologize for that. But this movie, The Chariots of Fire, is, a, is based on the story of two British runners, Harold Abrams and Eric Little, both of whom competed for Great Britain in the 1924 Olympics. Eric Little was a devout Christian, and he's portrayed that way in the movie pretty faithfully. And as a matter of fact, he was actually born in China to Scottish missionaries, and then he uh, studied in Great Britain, and he rose to fame because of his gift as an accomplished runner. In the movie, it shows how he is disciplined, how he's motivated, and how he has an intense focus, not just on being good at running, but also for the glory of God. And so the movie chronicles his life. It chronicles the life of this other gentleman, Harold uh, Abrams, as well. But it, it brings at the climax our view to the scene of the 1924 Olympics where there's a problem that's presented for Eric. You see, the qualifying race for the 100-meter sprint, the event for which he's been training and the event that he was favored to win, was scheduled to be hosted on a Sunday. You see, Little would take a very firm stance not to run on Sunday because of his conscience regarding how he wanted to honor the Sabbath before the Lord. And despite great pressure and great ridicule from the public, he stands his ground. But as a result, he forfeits his ability to run the 100-meter race. And as a result, he's really forfeiting, it seems, the ability to achieve that glory, not just for himself, but also for his nation that he was representing. Well, thankfully, he's able to trade slots with one of his teammates so that he can at least run in a event. And he's able to enter the 400-meter run. But because of its length and because that wasn't his focus leading up to the event, it was incredibly unlikely that he would win the glory of a medal in that race. But despite the odds and despite his own expectations of a loss, Little famously wins the race. And as a result, he's vindicated in the eyes of his team and in the public. But most importantly to Little, he feels vindicated in the eyes of the Lord for having honored him and having trusted him in the midst of all of that hostility. And that platform that he earned through that obedience to God, he used to glorify the Lord. And as I thought about Little's example, I was moved. I began to ask, what enabled this man to have such a powerful witness despite all of the hostility he faced for his decision? What mindset equipped him to stand firm under all of the pushback that he got and the pressure to compromise on his convictions? I believe that he was able to withstand because ultimately his eyes were never really fixed on that Olympic finish line. No, I believe that he was able to stand firm for Christ amidst the hostility because his eyes were fixed on the finish line of his eternal reward. His eyes were fixed on the end. His eyes were fixed on the glory of God. And because of that ultimate focus, Little was able to have the mentality of an exile. He saw himself as a sojourner, as one just passing through. He was able to be a bold witness because he was liberated from the fear of man and because he knew that this world was not his home. 
He didn't have to race for that earthly reward because he was racing for a heavenly reward. And brothers and sisters, I think this aspect of being a disciple can be missed in our day and age. And I also think this aspect of being a disciple is critical for effectiveness as believers in our age too. You see, like little, we are also also in a hostile world, are we not? Like little, we face societal pressures and ridicule for our witness. And despite the challenges, though, don't you long to stand firm for Christ? Don't you long to be like Eric Little and be a bold witness precisely because you embrace your role as an exile? I know that I do. And so, in today's verses, we're going to see what it means to have that exile mentality. You see, Peter in these verses is writing to Christians in a very similar circumstance to Little and in a very similar circumstance to us. He was writing to brothers and sisters who were transformed by the power of the gospel, yes, but they were left in a world that was no longer their home. As they were longing to live for Christ and for His glory, the world was moving in the opposite direction. And as a result, they were facing persecution and pressure and were being tempted to forsake obedience to Christ and His mission. And so what's Peter's exhortation? What is his message to them in the midst of this hostility? Well, his message, and therefore the message of today's sermon is, we must embrace our identity of exiles if we're to be effective disciples for Christ. We must embrace our identity as exiles if we are going to be effective disciples for Christ. This world is not our home. And what Peter's going to show us is that reality empowers us to live a different kind of life, a life that is focused on different things. And you can see how this mindset is critically important for the progress that we make as believers in the two journeys, right? You can see that how if we allow ourselves to start living for the world, instead of living for Christ, we'll have fewer reasons to strive for holiness. We won't be willing to pay the costs required for evangelism. If we don't have an exile mentality embracing that identity that Jesus has given to us as part of our salvation package, then we'll be tempted to forsake our obedience to Him and we'll either be coaxed into complacency by comfort or we'll be crippled in witness by compromise. But we don't want that, do we? We want to be individuals. We want to be a church that is set apart, progressing in both holiness and powerful in witness. And so what does this look like? What is the profile of an exile? Well, Peter gives us a picture of this in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And what we're going to see is four exhortations that give us strength to withstand under four temptations that are common to those of us who are in exile. And what are those exhortations? Well, effective exiles sacrifice willingly for the glory of God. They walk confidently in Christ's holiness. They focused earnestly on gospel priorities And then they serve faithfully in the Spirit's power. So where do we see this? Well, let's dive right in. Let's look again at verses 1 and 2 
that you heard read moments ago. If you don't have a Bible open to 1 Peter 4, I would encourage you to pull it out and to turn there. In 1 Peter 4, he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. If you take a look at that first line, you'll notice that the first command in these verses is what? It's to arm ourselves. But Peter doesn't provide any physical weaponry with which we're supposed to arm ourselves. Instead, he says that we're supposed to arm ourselves with a certain way of thinking. It's interesting, in the original language of the New Testament, the word for way of thinking carries the sense of a thought pattern. It carries the sense of a perspective through which you see everything about your life. And so it's important for us to understand what this way of thinking is. And so what is it? Well, to understand what Peter's getting at, we actually need to pick up on a theme that he's been developing since chapter 3. If you can, flip up to 1 Peter 3 and look at verse 17. He says, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And then to press that point further, he links the suffering that believers are experiencing to the example of Christ and his own accomplishment on the cross. Look at 1 Peter 3, 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. And so what is he getting at here? Well, he's addressing a temptation that threatens exiles who are facing persecution. He's addressing the temptation to give up, to stop living for righteousness because of the cost. And so speaking into this temptation, his exhortation is a reminder of what is true in the gospel. He tells them that while it's true that we as sinners deserve the wrath of God for sin, that Jesus as God took on our sin upon himself, though he had no sin of his own, and that he died the death that we deserve to die so that we might live to God, and that those who repent from sin and turn to Christ are completely forgiven and now belong to him. They've been called out. But powerfully, through that encouragement, he also reminds them of a critical truth. He reminds them that in order to achieve that great salvation, what did Jesus have to do? He had to suffer. Jesus himself had to have a particular mindset. Jesus himself had to have a willingness to sacrifice for the glory of God. He didn't shirk back from glorifying the Lord and the accomplishment of his plan. Instead, he chose to willingly embrace suffering. And so when Peter writes in chapter 4, verse 1, about this suffering that he's alluding to, when he says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, he's introducing that theme that he's been developing again, and now he's applying it to them, saying, brothers and sisters, this suffering, this willingness to embrace for the glory, uh, to embrace suffering for the glory of God, it's actually a critical trait of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus means to follow after him in the same way of thinking, in the same way of living. And so he reminds them that the reason that they're experiencing persecution is precisely because they have identified with Christ. They've been transformed. 
As a result, they're living a new kind of life. And as a result, they don't fit into the pagan society in which they now live. As they're becoming more like Christ, they're becoming more different than the world. They're becoming exiles. And so what's Peter's exhortation? He says, embrace it. Arm yourselves with this same sacrificial mindset. Look again at Peter, uh, 1 Peter 4, 1 through 2. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, implication, that Christ had. And that way of thinking gives way to an encouragement, to a hope, because we know something that the world can never understand. We know the gospel paradox that through Christ's suffering, he was what? Glorified and exalted. And so when we identify with Christ in his suffering, it makes it clear for us as his disciples that the pathway to our glory and our exaltation is also suffering and a willingness to embrace that sacrifice. Peter goes on. Peter says it doesn't just give us hope because we're identifying with our Savior that we need to follow after Jesus and do the things and think the ways he did. He also highlights that this identity needs to be protected. Look again where it says uh, in verse uh, 2, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What's he getting at there? Well, he's getting at the reality that their suffering for righteousness actually serves to prove or to authenticate the fact that they belong to Jesus and that they no longer belong to the world. He's not saying that once you become a Christian that you're perfect, but instead he's saying that in Christ you have died to the old way of living. It's no longer true of you. If you're in Christ, you've made a clean break with the ways of the world, and so you've been empowered by Christ to live for the glory of God. We're reminded of the words of Jesus himself from John chapter 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll what? They'll also persecute you. And so when Peter says, live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God, he's also showing that the sacrificial mindset not only helps us to walk identifying with Jesus, but it gives us power to obey him in a hostile world. That perspective of a willingness to sacrifice helps to stop us from being tossed to and fro by worldly passions. Our compass is now fixed on heaven. It's no longer fixed on any point of this world. And as a result, our driving motivation is the same motivation of Jesus. It's to bring God glory with our lives. Don't you see the power of that perspective? The power of that perspective is that you, brother and sister in Christ, have been liberated to take up your cross and to follow Jesus daily if you would just arm yourself with that sacrificial mindset that Jesus had. So what does this look like? Well, it means that when we're faced with temptation towards sin, we know the gospel paradox that it's actually through dying to that temptation that we actually live in him. When we're faced with the choice of investing our time, our energy, our money, our resources in this world instead of the kingdom, we know that through sacrifice for the kingdom, we actually store up eternal treasure unto God. And so we no longer live for the passions of this world. Money, fame, prestige, power, all of those things are pursuits of the old self. We now have a central focus, and it's the glory 
of God. We don't prize what the world prizes anymore. Peter's saying you've been freed from focusing your affections on the world's idolatry. And so we're seeing here in this exhortation, in the midst of exile, don't be tempted to forsake living for righteousness even when you faced persecution. Because effective disciples have the mindset of Christ. They sacrifice willingly for the glory of God. And so let's just stop right here. What does this look like for us individually? How do we as disciples in our context live out this faith in the midst of hostility? Well, I can't pretend to know what this looks like individually for each and every one of you, but I do think a particular question can be helpful for us as we evaluate our efficacy as disciples in a hostile world. And I think it can be summed up very simply with this question. In what ways are you embracing suffering for the gospel? As you evaluate and look at your life, what patterns of suffering are present in your life that evidence that you belong to Christ and don't belong to the world? If you're coming up short in kindness, I just want to exhort you to consider that it may be because you've lost your exile mentality. Like a fish stuck in a current, brothers and sisters, it's so easy to be swept up into the ways of the world where the world is flowing. Especially in a context like ours where we're surrounded by comfort and we're surrounded by pleasure and it's so easy to grow complacent. And so when we ask that question, are we willing to embrace suffering for the gospel? What it's really getting at is, have we grown too comfortable in this world such that we are actively avoiding discomfort for the sake of Christ? Is it possible that we've forgotten how we've been liberated to live not for the passions of the world, but to live for God's glory? I think that's a threat that stands over every believer in Christ in every generation. And so Peter writes to them, don't do that. Don't give up being a witness in the midst of hostility. Don't give in to the worldly passions of your former self. Put on this focus, this desire, this affection that Jesus had that motivated him to be willing to suffer and to sacrifice for the glory of God. But a willingness to sacrifice is not the only quality that a disciple in exile needs to have. Yes, it's true that that frame of mind is important, but what about their way of living? Well, for this, let's take a look at verses 3 through 6. There, Peter writes, For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. Here he's picking up on that old life that they used to live in, and he's basically saying, remember, you have that clean break, but what's the result? He says, with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. And though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So what is he getting at in these verses? Well, he's addressing another temptation that disciples in exiles face. They face the temptation to forsake holiness, set-apartness, to look like the world. You see, in the case of these believers that he's writing to, many of them were saved out of these sin patterns that he just listed, but they were still living in the midst of people and an environment where those sins 
or actively present. And I think this reality is one of the reasons why Peter emphasizes so heavily throughout the book holiness as part and parcel of what it means to be a disciple. For example, back in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, he gives a similar entreaty where he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I, God, am holy. Holiness throughout Scripture is one of those defining characteristics of God. To be holy means to be set apart, to be undefiled, to be separate. And in the case of God, he's the pinnacle example of that. Absolute purity, absolute set-apartness. But holiness is also meant, as Peter's going to show us, to be a defining characteristic of God's people. Because holiness in the world signifies that we belong to him. It's what marks us out from the rest of the world as being his people. So Peter here is picking up on this theme yet again to remind the disciples in exile that they're going to be tempted to lose that otherness and that set-apartness that ought to characterize their walk in this world. They're going to be tempted, he says, to look more like the world than like Christ. And the reason why Peter hits this so heavily is because he knows that if that happens, if they forsake their holiness, It will not only impact their vertical worship of God and their relationship with Him, but it's also going to affect their horizontal witness to glorify the Lord as well. You know, this is clear in the Old Testament very plainly when you look at the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, that line where Peter says, you shall be holy for I am holy, he's actually quoting uh, a verse from Leviticus chapter 11 that appears in the middle of God giving some Old Testament regulations related to dietary practices, where he's commanding his people to not eat certain animals because that would make them unclean. And it's there that, interestingly, this verse appears making the connection between the holiness of God and the obedience of his people, that in order to worship God rightly, we need to align our lives with his word. We need to be holy as he is holy, if we're going to relate to him rightly. And so we see that there's this need vertically for holiness in order to worship God. But it's not just the vertical dimension because even in the Old Testament, we also see that there is a horizontal dimension to it as well. You see, the world was supposed to be able to look at the nation of Israel as they followed God and his law, and they were supposed to see their set-apartness. They were supposed to see that they were different, and they were supposed to see the glory of God in the midst of that obedience. Obedience to the law, therefore, was both a pathway to worshiping God, but it was also the power behind their mission. But we know from history and from God's Word that the Jews failed in both of these dimensions. They failed in their personal holiness. Instead, they they forsook God and turned to the idolatry of the world. And as a result of that, as Peter well knows, they failed in their mission to glorify the Lord because what happened? the nation began to look like every other nation, and God was dishonored. And so that's why, as even as far back as chapter 1, Peter reminds them that what's true of every disciple is that as part of being saved, you're called to be set apart unto God. 
Listen to what he says in 1 Peter 1, 13 and 15 through 15. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, what? Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, also be holy in all your conduct. And he goes on to make the connection even clearer in 1 Peter 2 where he says, you are, as a result of being saved, a chosen race. You are a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That, here's the purpose statement for that holiness, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Don't you see the connection there? As God's people walk in vertical alignment with God in holiness, they display that holiness and his godly character to a watching world. And in both processes, God has designed it such that he gets all the glory. Isn't that amazing? And so we see that in Christ, all of those Old Testament promises, all of those patterns are fulfilled. Peter's reminding them, in Christ, your holiness is secure. Because your power to flesh out this holiness in your life, it's no longer based off your merit and your ability to walk in obedience to God's law. Instead, it's based wholly on the obedience and on the perfection and on the power of our Savior who bought the righteousness that we could never have and then offers it freely to us. And so we can walk in holiness. We can walk in holiness because Christ has given us that confidence. But it's not like walking in holiness is going to be well-received by the world, is it? Look again at 1 Peter 4, 4. It says, with respect to this, they, the world, the people around them are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And what? They malign you. You see, it seems that these exiles, when they stop swimming in the muck of their former sin, the text says that those around them were surprised, but they weren't indifferent They started to malign the believers, to speak poorly of them, to make fun of them, to ridicule them for not going along in the flood of debauchery, for not plunging back into that river of immorality that they were saved from. And I think that this is a form of persecution that we can relate with even today. You see, as we look around our world, it doesn't take long to see how living lives of holiness, of set-apartness with fidelity to God and His uh, Word, isn't just apathetically ignored by the world, but instead it's being actively attacked. But in the face of this persecution, Peter just encourages them with the confidence and another reason that we can be confident in our holiness, that they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. See that in 1 Peter 4, 5. So what is he doing there? He says, look, you just keep your eyes fixed on the end. And when you face persecution in this world for your holiness, remember God is the one who will judge, not you. So you just keep standing firm. You just keep walking purely and let God judge the sinners. In the end, you will be vindicated. So don't seek your vindication in the world. If you do, you're going to be led astray. It's with a heavenly mindset fixed on judgment day that we are empowered to walk in holiness and to not care what the world thinks. And he goes on to explain this vindication even more with admittedly a pretty confusing verse. But I hope through this explanation you'll understand what Peter's getting at. Look at 1 Peter 4, 6. 
He says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So this is a, a difficult text because people read that and they're looking at it and they're like, wait a minute, are we supposed to share the gospel with dead people? That doesn't make any sense. They're already dead. That's not what Peter's getting at at all. Instead, he's just reminding them again in a fresh way that we are aware as believers that there's more to the picture than what the world can see. Although they maligned the believers who died physically, is what Peter's getting at, even though the world looked at them and they maligned the believers who died physically, he's giving them the promise that those believers who died having suffered under the malignment of the world, they'll be raised to new life in Christ with spiritual resurrection bodies, and they too will be vindicated in their faith. You see, the world would look at believers who had professed faith in Christ and started living this transformed lifestyle, and then they would see that they would die before Christ returns, and they would say, well, what benefit is there to be a believer? I mean, you just gave up all of those passions and the pleasures of the world, and to what end? You died just like the rest of us do. Peter's saying, no. When the gospel was preached to believers while they were still living, they already became secure in the promises of Christ, including their eventual vindication. There's more to the picture that the world doesn't see. And so keep striving. Again, it's another exhortation to keep striving for holiness because your labor in holiness is not in vain. So we've seen how effective exiles need a mentality of being willing to sacrifice willingly to make progress in the Christian life, to sacrifice willingly for the glory of God. But we've also seen that effective exiles need to walk confidently in the holiness of Christ, not just because it affects our vertical relationship with God now, but it also affects our horizontal witness in the world. But the question remains, what, what then should be our focus? What should be our driving pursuit in light of these truths? How should we use our time, our energy, our money, our resources to evidence that we are, in fact, set apart in these ways? Well, that's where Peter goes on to explain that disciples ought to focus earnestly on gospel priorities. And he does this because another temptation that affects exiles who are trying to live in a hostile world is that they're going to be tempted to waste their time spending their lives on the wrong things. Let me show you this from God's Word. Look at 1 Peter 4, 7-9. through He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, and above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So what is he getting at here? Well, in these verses, Peter picks up on that theme of end judgment that he just encouraged the believers with to walk in holiness, but he shifts his attention away from their vindication in the sight of the world to the implications for their holy living and their daily commitment to Christ. So in doing so, he reprises the exhortation from verse 2 that believers ought to spend their lives that they have remaining in this world to live for God's glory. But here, very powerfully, he adds another dimension— He adds the dimension of the urgency of Christ's return. Now, at first glance, this may invite some questions. After all, Peter was writing 2,000 years ago. Was he just mistaken when he wrote that the end of all things is at hand, that Christ is coming back and so you better live urgently? No, I don't think so. As a matter of fact, I think Peter understood very well what he wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. Remember there that Peter says, 
With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and as a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, Peter is keenly aware that when Christ was resurrected and when he ascended into heaven in glory, that that inaugurated what's called the last days. In other other words, the next thing on the heavenly calendar from God's perspective is the return of his son where he will come to issue in judgment and to welcome all who have professed faith in him into his presence forever. And so the critical question for them, and I think the critical question for us then, is if that's true, if Christ is in fact returning and nobody knows the day or the hour and and we ought to live our lives in response to that urgency, then what should we be doing? What's supposed to be filling the time between the first coming and the second coming of Christ? I mean, given the reality of the fires of judgment day that await those who do not trust in him, and given the reality that everyone's going to have to stand and give an account to God, it seems obvious that the answer to this question would drive everything in our lives, wouldn't it? The answer to this question would be the central focus of the church. It would occupy the heart and the mind of every believer every day and would drive and motivate us towards greater obedience in Christ. And so the question is, what are we supposed to be doing? Well, I think you already know the answer because God's word has not left us to guess. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, right before Jesus ascended, he came and said to them, his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And what's the command? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. What's the will of God for this time of our lives, this era between Christ's first coming and his second? Peter is aware that it's the spread of the gospel to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation so that when Christ returns, he will gain the inheritance. He, will be, he would find people who have been called out for his possession so that they can enjoy presence with him forever. And very powerfully, meditate on this, very powerfully, Jesus also makes it plain in Matthew 24, 14, that in a mysterious sense, our obedience and commitment to this mission somehow hastens his coming. Listen to what Jesus says. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so Peter is aware of this. God's word makes us aware of this. And so with the return of Christ in view, and with the great commission still left to be obeyed, what does Peter command the people to do? Well, he gives some examples of what I think is a central exhortation It's to focus earnestly on gospel priorities. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded in light of the return of Christ. You see, some people back then when they heard that Christ would return, they started acting irrationally. You may remember that Paul actually had to address this problem with the church at at Thessalonica. They were doing some crazy stuff because they were expecting Christ to return. He says, no, 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 no. Don't act irrationally, but you do need to be alert You need to be vigilant. Be disciplined, yes, but just obey Christ in the ways that he's called you to obey. 
he's giving them yet another perspective to arm themselves with. He says, what you need to do is you need to be clear-minded, setting your mind on judgment day, and then let that perspective drive your way of thinking on how you spend your life for the glory of God. So he's saying, as you, as you live your life, that alertness to God's will because of the imminency of Christ's return, it, will, it should be causing you to depend on God more and more. And so you need to be alert and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be driven to the Lord in prayer in view of the fact that Christ is returning. Seek His will. Seek His power. And then ask for His help to obey in the Spirit. He goes on to give another example. Love one another earnestly. So, We can't live as disciples of Christ not being forgiving as Christ was forgiving us. It just doesn't align. It doesn't square. So Peter is saying, look, if your master who has forgiven you much is returning soon, live like it. Give forgiveness graciously to those who have wronged you. And in doing so, you're also going to participate in Christ's mission for the forgiveness that we offer to people around us shows the world what the forgiveness of Christ really is. And then as an extension of that love that's being shown towards one another, he says, show hospitality. He's saying, you know, those traveling pastors and missionaries who are going to be coming through your town, open up your home and support them in the work. And you know, as churches get planted, they're going to need a place to worship and to meet. And so open your homes generously. Don't, don't do it begrudgingly. Don't complain. Show the world that it's a privilege to participate with Christ on mission in this way. And all of this, again, is in view of the reality that our Lord is returning soon. And so we see that effective exiles need to focus earnestly on gospel priorities. And that's fleshed itself out powerfully in everyday faithfulness that's focused with a judgment day perspective. But there's one final temptation facing exiles that Peter also addresses. It's very similar to the previous temptation and the previous exhortation, but it's a little bit different, and therefore I think it's worthy of special focus. You see, exiles were not just tempted to waste their remaining time because of a wrong perspective of focusing on the wrong things. Even if they're focused on the right things, exiles will also be tempted to waste power that's been entrusted to them to glorify the Lord. Look again at verses 10 through 11 of 1 Peter 4. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, and whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's consider each phrase very briefly, because I think each each phrase is important. Firstly, Peter tells us about the gift's nature. The word that he uses for gift is the word charisma, and it just means a gift of grace. And this is important because it reminds us that these are not natural abilities that we can work for or earn ourselves. No, he's reminding them that if you have a gift, it's been given to you by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of building up the church. And so this reality humbles us. The fact that it's something that's given to us reminds us that this is from God, and so we need to have a God focus in how we use it. But secondly, he also shows us the gift's purpose. They're meant for service. They're not meant to draw attention to the individual or to build our platform. No, Peter's saying, don't have that mindset. That's, That's the mindset that the church at Corinth had that Paul had to address, if you remember. 
He said, no, don't abuse the gifts. You need to be reminded that your gift is given not for your benefit, but for the benefit of service. But then thirdly, he also clarifies, and we see the gifts distribution, both in their kind and in their sorting. What do I mean by this? Well, he says that the gifts of the Spirit are given to each believer. And this is a truth that's echoed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, where he says very plainly, to each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Brothers and sisters, isn't that encouraging to know that each and every one of you who has been redeemed by Christ, you haven't just been saved to bask in the glory of Christ, though that is an important part of discipleship. You've also been given a gift to use for His glory and to serve the church and to build it up. And you may notice too that Peter doesn't supply a whole list of gifts like Paul does in Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12, but he just fits them kind of neatly into two categories. He says there's speaking gifts and serving gifts. And I think the reason for this is that Peter's emphasis is different from Paul's emphasis. When Paul brings up those lists of gifts, his focus is more on demonstrating God's wisdom and how he Uh, assembled the body, and to encourage humility that's rooted in the reality that the gifts are given at the discretion and pleasure of God. But Peter is focusing not on the types of gifts, but rather on their purpose. He uses the two broad categories to demonstrate and to show that the emphasis he's trying to encourage them with is not on the gifts' kinds, but on their utilization. And to be able to utilize our gifts well, Peter says we need to embrace our role as good stewards. He says it's a stewardship of God's varied grace. What is a steward? Well, it's someone who manages their master's household and resources. The steward makes decisions with things that have been entrusted to them and in doing so represents the interest of the master. His singular focus is on doing and saying and thinking the master's actions, the master's thoughts, and the master's desires. And so Peter's saying that we should have that kind of mindset as it relates to our gifts. When we've been given a gift, it would be foolish for us to squander it and to waste it because it's been entrusted to us for a purpose. And what's that purpose? Look down at verse 11. He says that in in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is an amazing reality if you think about it. It's the reality that in God's sovereign plan of redemption, the, the, his plan of what he's doing in the world right now, that our heavenly master has chosen to bring glory to himself by including us in his work as his servants and has empowered us to live faithfully for his mission. And so it's incumbent upon us as stewards to think about our gifts. And Andy has helpfully used these three D words to help us think through what that could look like in our lives. I would encourage you to discover what your gifts are, to discover what your gifts are, and then once you discover them, to develop your gifts so that you can use them well for God's glory. And then as you develop them, deploy them as well. Use them. Gain experience for what it means and be sharpened in the use of your gift so that you can bring the most glory to God as possible. Effective disciples serve faithfully in the power of the Holy Spirit because in doing so, they are using their lives to glorify the Lord and to draw attention to His salvation reality and building His church. And so we see that disciples sacrifice willingly for God's glory. We see that disciples walk confidently in Christ's holiness. We see that disciples focused earnestly on gospel priorities and that we serve faithfully in the Spirit's power, all as both evidences of and power for 
living as effective disciples in the midst of exile. And so very quickly, what applications can we take from these truths? Well, there's been application, I think, sprinkled throughout just to live out obedience to the clear commands that Peter's given. But synergizing them all together, what are some ways that we can think rightly about our lives? Well, first and foremost, if you're not yet a believer in Christ, you need to come to Christ. All of the promises that we've been talking about, all of the blessings, the forgiveness that's offered through repentance and faith, all of that's only true if you in fact see Jesus for who he was, that as a suffering servant, he suffered to die to bring you eternal life. And a day is fixed when Jesus is returning, and that day is imminent. We don't know the day and hour of his return. And so the call for you, if you do not know Christ, is to quickly turn to Jesus See him with the eyes of faith and then be empowered to walk and to use the remainder of your life for the glory of the Lord. But for those of us who are believers, what takeaways exist for us? Well, one, I think we need to evaluate our exile mentality. We mentioned this earlier in the message, but are we living as exiles? Are we willing to sacrifice for the sake of Christ? If the answer is no, pray and ask the Lord to help you to have that mindset, the mindset of an exile that confirms for us that this world is not our home so that we can be equipped to live for God's glory. Secondly, and relatedly, guard against coasting in the Christian life. It's so tempting to just follow the flow of the world even as Christ's called out disciples. You must resist that pull to fall back into either your old sin patterns or to fall into the world's pursuits and passions instead of the glory of God. So guard against coasting. God saved you for so much more than just coming week after a week to hear a worship service and then to leave and go home unchanged. God has called you to participate as active members of his body, to not only be encouraged when we gather to worship, but to go in power to display his glory to a watching world. And so don't coast, brothers and sisters. Guard your heart against that and put into practice a set-apartness that gives God the glory of your life. And related to that, thirdly, make everyday faithfulness your priority. You know, it's so encouraging to me that when Peter was giving the exhortations to live faithfully, he didn't list a whole bunch of crazy stuff. He basically gives examples of what it means to just follow Christ simply but effectively in the world around us. Praying, showing hospitality, extending our resources to people in need. But even to do those things, brothers and sisters, we need to make it a priority. And so make living everyday faithfulness your priority. And then lastly, and I think probably this summarizes really the theme of everything he's getting at. Live each day in light of that day. Live each day of your life in light of judgment day. Because when Christ returns, I earnestly desire that each one of you would hear the commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't you want to hear that commendation on judgment day from your master? Live each and every day in light of judgment day and let that empower you to walk with boldness and with effectiveness in the world. You know, it's fascinating. Eric Little, um, at the end of the movie, Chariots of Fire, it shows him winning the race, and then at the very end during the credits, it just has a little word that says, Eric Little went on to serve the Lord in China, and there he died. And I began to think about how so much of the movie was focused on his Olympic pursuits and how he fleshed out his faith there, and that's worthwhile. But what was Eric Little's true life? 
Was it not everything that was true about that little phrase at the end of the movie? Eric Little gave up an Olympic fame. He gave up running in the ways that he was. Uh, he gave up that, that glory that comes from the world so that he could live for a different kind of glory, a glory that was not his own but that belonged to the Lord. And so I would encourage you to live, to walk, to pray, and to earnestly seek God's will so that you too can be effective disciples for Christ. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and Lord, this is a convicting text. And we know, Lord, that we are weak. We desperately need your strength to obey it. So I pray, Lord, that you would even now just send your Holy Spirit. Please fill us with a, a, a sense of our belonging to Christ that reminds us of the beauty and the preciousness of the gospel and how it, it fixes our relationship vertically with you. But Lord, help us to also see how that impacts how we live our lives for the glory of God now. Lord, please help us when we face persecution to see that and that's exactly what we should expect. That of course the world is not going to honor or respect our holiness because they rejected our Savior. And help us to see, Lord, that even in the midst of suffering, in identifying with Christ, we're actually living out that gospel paradox. That although we suffer, our suffering is actually the pathway to eternal glory. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder. And may it empower all of us as we go from this place to live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.